Anthony, good to speak to you in Hong Kong. You're there on the ground. Tell us how it is, how it's been since the national security law was imposed. Yeah, it really was a, an overnight change here in Hong Kong in many respects when the national security law came into force shortly before midnight uh, on the 1st of July, the, the anniversary of the handover. And really overnight, so many things changed. Um, the uh, police, uh, the next day during protests began displaying banners saying that people were subject to arrest for chanting slogans or holding posters that um, potentially promoted or incited secession or subversion, and people were arrested on that day for doing that. Um, police raided pro-democracy stores and cafes and restaurants and demanded that they take down the various pro-democracy or pro-protest slogans that they displayed in their stores. Um, just this sense that suddenly in Hong Kong there were forbidden words, things that couldn't be spoken about, books that perhaps no longer could be published, um, slogans that couldn't be chanted, was just such a, a, a shift in the way Hong Kong had always thought of itself and been perceived as this sort of bastion of, of freedom, not only in, in China, but really in Asia as a whole. Up until now, Hong Kong had been this place where people could come from around Asia and express themselves freely in ways that they couldn't in many other places. And all of that really has changed now. So it's had an impact not only on, on, on people coming out onto the streets to protest, but also uh, just the ordinary discourse and, and stretching even into areas such as academia with academics expressing concern about the, the kind of things that they are, they are free to talk about uh, in their classes, the kind of things they're, they're free to, to research. It, it's had a really wide ranging effect. And so this is a, a, a real change, a, a, a real new Hong Kong that people woke up to when the national security law came into force. Uh, of course, the other sector that have been very concerned about the national security law has been the, the, the media sector and its impact on, on journalism. But uh, Jane, I think you've certainly seen that um, both in mainland China and in Hong Kong after the national security law, law as well. Is, is that right? Yes, well, I think one of the interesting things about the whole takeover of Hong Kong, which is my shorthand for what the mainland has done, is uh, the, the targeting of media, of both the Chinese media and the Western media. I mean, let's start with the Chinese media. It seems that one of the real uh, driving forces of Beijing uh, taking over Hong Kong, starting a few years, the pressure on Hong Kong started a few years ago, and it started on those savvy publishers who were printing inside stories on what was really going on inside the Communist Party. And Beijing wanted to stop that, and they stopped that quite effectively by arresting uh, the publishers, shutting down uh, their printing presses, etc. So they were shut down. And then, of course, when the national security law came in, uh, in July 1, as you mentioned, um, the Western media has really felt the impact, uh, which is really very sad. If I can just go back in history for a bit, I remember when I first went into China many moons ago during the Cultural Revolution, Hong Kong was the beacon of freedom. Of course, I, this was, you know, this is ancient history and the British were in charge, but people were listening to what was going on in the mainland in Hong Kong. Uh, now, in 2020, uh, the New York Times is being denied visas for its journalists who are based in Hong Kong. And because of the uncertainty, the New York Times is moving its entire digital operation uh, to South Korea. 
and they say digital operation, but that basically means the entire editing process is moving uh, to Seoul. And everybody hopes that the few New York Times reporters who are in Hong Kong and who remain in Hong Kong will get visas, but it's not entirely clear that will happen and that Hong Kong will become shut down for Western reporters, as indeed uh, the mainland has. So, Anthony, I'm wondering, what does that do for the quality of discourse in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think you alluded to something really important, which is this is really a great loss, not just for Hong Kong itself, but also for China and indeed the rest of the world. If Hong Kong is no longer that place where we can have this free exchange of ideas, where China can meet the rest of the world and the rest of the world can meet in China and talk about China's future and its role in the world. So I think that's the real tragedy. This is not just Hong Kong's loss, but it's it's a loss for, for China and indeed the rest of us. Um, and let's hope that that perhaps can be remedied in the future. Well, I must say I'm not too optimistic about it being remedied because the Trump administration maybe talks a good talk for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours, uh, but after that uh, it, it, it basically forgets it and uh, it has made some gestures towards uh, removing special status of Hong Kong, but that doesn't really affect the economy of Hong Kong at all. And uh, predictably, it's not doing anything very much about taking in those uh, Hong Kong citizens who are being badly and unfairly and shamefully punished by the Chinese government. Indeed. Anyway, great to chat with you, Jane, and uh, thanks for talking and caring about Hong Kong. Yes, well, it's one of my favorite places, and even though this is going on, it will continue to be.